Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to season one, episode seven of the StoryGrid Writers Room podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a certified StoryGrid editor, and I'm also a writer. And I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. This week, we're studying the I Have a Voice scene from The King's Speech. You knew we couldn't do a whole season without sticking a film in. I mean, come on. So this scene starts about an hour and 23 minutes into the film, and it lasts for eight minutes. So it's a huge scene. Uh, The movie was released in 2010, and it won Oscars for Best Picture and Best Actor, and of course, Best screenplay and it was directed by Tom Hooper from a screenplay by David Seidler. Now we actually studied this film on the Roundtable podcast so if you're interested in learning more than what we talk about today you can always go back and listen to that episode. We're focusing on scenes this season on the Writer's Room podcast because scenes are the basic building blocks of story. So if you can write a scene that works you can write a story that works. Now, before we get into analyzing the scene, I'll just go over the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff of the movie uh, to help just refresh your memory about what this is about, Um, if you just can't recite it like I can. All right, so this is a performance story with a status sentimental uh, secondary genre. And in the beginning hook, we have, during his speech at the closing ceremonies for the Empire Exhibition in 1925, the Duke of York falters because of his stammer and initial efforts to treat his stammer fail, but when speech therapist Lionel Logue shows him that he doesn't stammer when he's listening to music, the Duke must decide whether to sacrifice his pride and comfort to pursue treatment. He negotiates with Logue and treatment begins. In the middle build, King George V dies, and the Duke's older brother, David, who was King Edward, soon abdicates the throne, making it all the more necessary that the new King George VI overcome his stammer. But after insisting that Logue attend the coronation, where his family will be seated, he learns that Logue is not a doctor or trained speech ther- therapist, uh, but and must decide whether to continue his treatment. Now, this is the big scene that we're going to be looking uh, at in a few minutes. Logue goads George VI into declaring that he has a voice and explains that his perseverance and courage will make him a great king, and it sure does. The king performs his brief portions of the coronation without a problem. In the ending payoff, Britain declares war on Germany, and George VI must deliver a nine-minute speech to the nation. It's a long speech for him, especially, 
the importance of which is related to the role of the monarch as one who speaks for the people. And when the time comes to speak and Logue tells him to say the speech to him as a friend, the king delivers an almost flawless performance. In contrast to the disappointing looks from the inciting incident performance, everyone outside the recording booth cheers the king after he finishes. And we are home cheering for him too. What a great feeling it is. Alrighty, Leslie, let's dive into the scene type. This is one of the episodes, Leslie, where I think if we're not really disciplined, you and I will talk for two hours. So let's, well, you and I, I will talk for two hours. <laughs> okay, so let's dive into the scene type. Do you want to kick us off with the editor scene type? Sure. So what function does this scene serve in the story? Well, it's coming toward the end of the middle build. It represents the climax and the resolution of the act. So we've had the turning point, David's abdication, which is a hard word to say, abdication. Um, the abdication is the turning point that forces Bertie into a crisis. Am I going to be king? Am I really going to embody this role? Am I going to step up or not? And so this is the, this is the purpose of the scene in the story. Right. Look, this movie, the more I watch it, the better it gets, the more layers that I see in it. And this scene is just beyond. The writer scene type. This is kind of where we're having fun, kind of coming up with names for all these things. I'm calling this a poking the bear scene. And there's a reason. Yes, it's another two-person scene in which a truth comes out. I mean, I, Anne's voice keeps popping in my head all the time. But it's, it's a specific type of two-person scene in, with a tr in which a truth comes out. Bertie is not accepting his responsibility. He is figuratively abdicating his responsibility to, to be a king, to use his voice, to step into his power. Whereas his brother, David, King Edward, abdicated the throne. He, he did a literal abdication. Lionel keeps trying to get Bertie to listen to him. But he won't. He will not listen to reason because he's too busy having a pity party. So Lionel has to, has to embody Bertie's shadow, shadow self, and reflect back to him what Bertie, how Bertie is behaving. He, he's, he's a bit petulant, right? He's all sort of poor me, poor me. And so Logue gives that back to him. And that's when we have that big explosion in the scene that finally makes Bertie shout, I have a voice. Yes, you do. That's what Logue has been trying to tell you this whole time. And Elizabeth has been trying to tell you this. And in a strange sort of way, his father, King George V, also tried to tell him that. Um, so the way that Logue gets Bertie to snap out of it is by poking the shadow, by, by evoking the shadow and making it come alive. So I'm calling it a, a poke the bear scene. And it's, it's a scene in which the shadow side of the protagonist is deliberately evoked 
for a specific reason. What do you think of that? I think that's a great interpretation of the scene of, you know, what's, what's basically happening. And the cool thing is we'll talk about when we get into the story event analysis is that it's totally consistent with what Lionel is doing in the scene, what he wants, you know, and he's using a variety of tactics and, so I think, yes, it's a wonderful way to characterize it, captures all that's happening. So that's wonderful. Now, the next little question that we've come up with in our determination of what a scene is, is what does this scene type accomplish within the context of the novel as a whole? And I kind of just talked about that a, a bit. This is a huge point in the story. It's a major I mean, it's kind of what the whole thing is about. This is when Birdie finally steps into the kinging, as David says. I've been kinging. Well, this is when Birdie steps into that role as the monarch and truly wears it. So it's huge. There's a whole character study we could do, but stay focused, Valerie, stay focused. <laughs> How many people are in the scene? Two. Where does the scene take place? What's the location? The Westminster Abbey. Right. The grandeur of Westminster Alley. We get er, Abbey. <laughs> I'm stuck in the Harry Potter episode, maybe. I don't know. But the grandeur, right? The history, the weight of the position is there. And we get the trappings of the monarchy. And so it's really, I just wanted to drop a little footnote there because it's a, it's such an appropriate place for this scene. The location is not arbitrary. No. And I, again, I think back to the scene from Marriage Story, the big fight scene at, in Charlie's apartment. That scene is not, the location is not arbitrary. So one of the things that we can do, if we've got a scene that seems to be working in terms of it has the five commandments, there's a literal and there's essential action, but it doesn't seem to pop the way we want it to. Think about where the scene, where you've set your scene. What, what does the setting evoke? Like this is Westminster Abbey. And this is the, this is the preparation for the coronation. The next day he's going to have that crown put on his head and then he's in it. So it's, it's really important that he wears the responsibility before the actual coronation. He's, he is ready to accept that crown, which must be quite heavy, literally as well as figuratively. Um, what's the power, power dynamic in the scene? Oh, this is another great one. Leslie, do you want to jump in? Sure. It's, you know, what's really interesting is that Bertie, who is going to be king, is in, in the beginning of the scene. He has, he's ceded his agency or abdicated his power to the people around him. And, you know, he's upset um, I, I don't know if I'd go so far to say he's having a pity party, but, but you know, he's in a bad, he, he's in a vulnerable place, right? And Logue is like, dude, step up. Like, 
you know, this is your moment. You can do this. And so I think that we have, everybody's got power before, right? At the very beginning of the scene, you see Birdie walking away from the advisors who have been working on him. He has almost no power. And of course, by the end, he has the power, he has the authority, he has the respect. And so it's so well done. Right. And the irony here, as the king of England, he actually does have power, but he keeps giving it away. He doesn't want to accept it. So the advisors certainly have power, but in this two-person scene, Logue, the common man, is the one with the power. And the whole scene is about Logue getting Bertie to take it. Usually we see in a scene a, a, a situation where both parties want the power and they're trying to keep it for themselves. Here's a scene where the one guy has it, but he knows he shouldn't have it. This, it's not an appropriate level of power for him to have. He is not the king. So he's trying to get the king to take the power that he needs. And of course, his voice is his power. That's what this whole thing is about. I'm telling you, this, this is layers and layers deep, this story. Um, what is the point of conflict and how does that relate to the character's objects of desire? Well, we kind of just covered this. Um, that they're arguing about the, the lack of credentials. And I, I really do think Bertie's having a pity party. He is so absorbed in the fact, he's so focused on the fact that he has a stammer, that he cannot see all of his other qualities that Logue sees, that his father saw, although his father never saw, never told him that until he was on his deathbed. That was, those were his last words. If his father maybe had told him that, in life, he probably would never have had the stammer. Or maybe it wouldn't have been severe because there's lots of there's lots of reasons the man has a stammer. I mean, I could have chosen the uh, Camp Town races scene. Uh, I could I could have chosen the the profanity scene, which is another brilliant one. Um, and that scene, in fact, seems to be very superficial and funny, and it is but it also has layers. Every scene in this film, you can, you can pull apart and see that there's nothing extra in this film. Everything that's in it is there for a purpose and serves multiple purposes. And we touched on this when we did The Bear Came Over the Mountain, where it, as a short story, everything in it is doing two or three things. In this film, it's the same. It's the same with the imitation game. So these movies, these stories that resonate with us do so in part because there's so much to think about and so much to consider. And there's, upon reflection, you see things that you didn't catch your first read through or your first viewing. Okay, Leslie, do you want to take us through um, the story event questions? And for anyone who isn't familiar with the StoryGrid questions, by all means, go to StoryGrid.com and download StoryGrid 101. It's a free download. Leslie. Okay, so our first question is, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on-the-ground actions? So 
Bertie and Lionel are having a conversation, you might say that this is the prelude to a session that they're going to have. You know, we're just talking about it. there are two people talking. They have a specific purpose. Now, what is that purpose? We look at the essential tactic of the characters to understand that. That's their macro behaviors that they are employing that are linked to a universal human value. Right, Bertie wants Lionel, um, sorry, Bertie wants to confront Lionel, right, with the, what he was just embarrassed about, the lack of credentials, right? Um, but he's also really underneath that, wanting someone to give him some respect. Lionel, on the other hand, wants to empower Bertie, but also put him at ease. So then we look at what universal human values have changed for the characters in the scene. And what's interesting here is that Logue doesn't really change. I was coming up with some ideas, but they were a bit of a stretch. He doesn't really change. His behavior that he's using to attain his scene goal does does change, right? He goes from kind of joking to talking um, to poking the bear, uh, but he doesn't really change. Birdie, on the other hand, he goes from unheard to heard. He is agency deprived to empowered. But of course, he also goes from feeling ashamed to respected by himself and a second and important second party, Lionel. And that's one I would put in the spreadsheet because this is a global performance story. That core value is all about respect. So then we take all of that information and we sum up the scene in a story event. And what I have here is when Lionel provokes Bertie by showing a lack of respect in Westminster Cathedral, Bertie chooses to speak up for himself as king. Awesome. Okay, let's jump through the jump through, jump into the five commandments of storytelling. I'll go over these quickly. There's uh, the progressive complications and there's more detail in the show notes. So you can check those out at storygrid.com. The inciting incident is when Bertie confronts Logue about his credentials. Now you could also say when Bertie or when Logue enters Westminster Abbey, if you want. For me, this is when the, the scene really gets going is when Bertie confronts Logue. The turning point is when Logue sits in St. Edward's chair and in doing so, he disrespects King George VI and all of the kings who have come before him. He's, dis he's disrespecting the monarchy. Bertie's crisis is, will he speak up or not? Will he use his voice? And so in doing so, it means, will he confront his stammer and a, or allow a commoner to disrespect the monarchy? Now, we just had in the news, there was just a, a whole thing about Kevin Spacey sitting in the, the throne. I mean, you don't, you don't be at it. You don't sit in the throne. The only person who gets to sit in a royal chair of any type is the monarch. <laughs> That's all there is to that. Um, 
and as a member of the Commonwealth, that probably resonates a bit more with me than um, with someone who's listening who's not in the Commonwealth. Um, okay, so the crisis then is Bertie confronts Lionel and demands as king to be heard. And in doing so, Bertie owns his voice. Finally, finally, finally. He claims his power and he steps into the role of monarch. He puts the archbishop in his place, which I love. I love that little bit. And the archbishop says, well, I, I'm just concerned for the head upon which I have to place the crown. And Bertie says, that's all very well, but it's my head. I'm still a human being. It is my head. This is my stammer. And this guy can help me. So this is the first time we see Bertie proactively doing something. And it's a beautiful moment and it's done so respectfully that, it, I mean, you can't help but love Bertie. Now, how amazing that David Seidler has us feeling so much empathy for a king he has made a king who's like a superhero who, in terms of protagonists, is at a higher level than the audience, right? Most of us are not royalty. Even in our own homes, sometimes we are not royalty. <laughs> and he's taken the king and made him an underdog and put him in a position below the, the audience member or the reader. So we're really rooting for him to, to deal with his stammer. The resolution then of the scene is Bertie and Logue review the coronation, which is to happen the following day. Leslie, this is my favorite part of the episode when we jump into what is special about the scene. Why don't you kick us off? Okay, so what I love about this scene is that it's a mini performance story in its own right. So at the level of individuals who are important to you in your life, so second party, Bertie is speaking up for himself, right, in that relationship. And the thing about performance stories, really it's all about being, expressing your gift in public, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences. You might screw it up. And, you know, and that's the fear, that you have in a performance story is like, I'm going to mess this all up. I'm going to make a mistake and it's going to be there for everyone to see. And the point of course is the big point is that we have to do that. We have to express our gifts, even if we fall flat on our faces, even if we risk embarrassment. And even if we're the king and we might, stumble over our words a little. It's just, yeah, that it's so important. So Bertie, um, as he's presented in the story, you know, as a character, I'm not, you know, obviously we don't know how true to life this is, but he's willing to suffer as an individual, right? And if his brother hadn't abdicated, Bertie might have just continued suffering these indignities you know that 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 are would just 
they're miserable to have people snickering or talking about you or, you know, making comments and, and that kind of thing. So, and he might never have felt heard and never spoken up. So it's only because his nation and by nation, I really mean his people. I feel like they're, he's ref, not referring to the, so much the, the geography as the people. His people are threatened and he must lead them. So that requires him to confront his trauma. So we have these multiple layers of conflict that are all actually showing up in this scene. So Lionel listens to him, realizes he must appeal to this deep concern of Bertie's if he's going to get him to speak up, which is exactly why he pokes the bear. So that's really interesting. You bring up the point that he's the king and yet his, his agency, his power is taken from him. And so we have that even people who appear to have power can have their agency taken from them, which is the negation of the negation in a performance story. It's that, that appearance of, or that publicly you're respected, but really you, you know, you're self-ashamed and your second party people, your close people re recognize it. Um, and the other thing I think about this, this scene is the way that it demonstrates the, the different hierarchies at play, right? The, if you look at the, how do you show power in the scene, right? Lionel addresses Bertie informally, but as an equal and with respect, right? But the archbishop addresses Bertie Although formally and, you know, using his title as the sovereign, but he is with a lack of respect, with a, oh, there, there, you know, um, the term mansplaining comes to mind, that there, there, king, uh, don't, don't worry your pretty little head about this. We've got it in hand. Um, so like, that's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. And of course, there's some great acting in here. The actors are just amazing. But if we get really down to it, the word choice and the repetition of motifs in this scene, because there's not a lot happening physically. No, there's not. And there's something that you just picked up on, the archbishop actually is condescending. He is very disrespectful. He tries to put Bertie in his place and say, you, you didn't seek um, counsel. You're supposed to seek counsel and be advised, something like that. I can't remember the line. You didn't seek our counsel, but now you have been advised. Right, little one? There, there. You, you know, you, like you said, don't worry your pretty little head about it. And Bertie says, yeah, it's my head, my stammer, my choice. I, I am the king, by the way, Archbishop. <laughs> In case you missed it, right? And you might have, because I haven't act, been acting very kingly, right? I've been ceding my agency. 
So if you look at the words that are used, this is a, we've got, we've got rehearse, we've got, how, you know, references to how people want to be called, um, equal footing, trust, help, of course, lots of things about speaking and listening. Um, but we've also got, as I said, trust, faith, friend, right? We've got these words are just amazing, amazing. And that consult and be advised, that's just, that turn of phrase is so good. So, so good at demonstrating the power in the scene and how it's shifting. So. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's lots more I could say about this scene, but I know you have some stuff you want to share as well. <laughs> Just picking up on what you said about word choice. I meet so many writers and lately I, there seems to have been a, a whole crop of writers who are talking about their hesitancy to write multiple drafts. If you talk about multiple drafts, they'll roll their eyes or groan or see it as just a painful, unhappy thing. And I, I've never understood it. To me, it's very liberating because you don't have to get it right the first time. <laughs> Thank God. You can go back and fix it. When we talk about word choice and motifs, this is what you're doing when you're going back and doing multiple drafts. You're not... David Seidler didn't write one draft of the King's Speech. In fact, it was a stage play that he adapted to film. So it had been workshopped for years before it ever made it to the screen. So when we say that it's a very lean story and that everything in it is there for a reason and it's doing double and triple duty, it is that way because it's been worked on so many times and there've been so many drafts. And then, so you have, talented writers coming to it, but then you have talented directors, talented actors, each bringing their craft to bear on this film. So Leslie's absolutely right when she says, none of these word choices are arbitrary. They're all chosen intentionally and strategically. That's the beauty of multiple drafts. Embrace multiple drafts. Embrace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I found it really hard to, to pick a couple of things from this scene to talk about, because like you said, Leslie, there's so many. First of all, I think this entire film is a masterclass in theme. We haven't talked a lot about theme in the Story Grid universe, again, simply because we just haven't gotten to it yet to do a really deep dive on theme. My eyes were opened on this topic by listening to Stephen Pressfield. He's got on stephenpressfield.com a whole series of blog posts all about theme and how to work it into your story. He's also got um, what your story is about, his jab, that's sort of taken some of that content and, and distilled it into one place for you to, to look, at it, look at it. Mine is full of notes. This is why I like my craft books in print because I'm writing in them. So what has to be on theme in your story? Everything, everything. Your, it's either an expression of the theme or the anti-theme. So for example, your protagonist is an expression of the theme. Your antagonist is, ex is an expression of the anti-theme. 
the title, the climactic point of the story, which is what we're talking about here today. The theme of this film is that not only does the king have a voice and a right to be heard, but so do we all. We're so busy seeding our agency and giving away our voice and then complaining about it, which is what Bertie is doing here. He's complaining that no one is going to listen to me. Well, if you have something to say, people will listen. If you step into the light and get out of the shadow, because he's been in David's shadow his whole life, and he's become very comfortable in the shadow. He was, yes, he was in line to, to the throne, obviously, that's how he got there. But without any real thought that he would become king, David was supposed to become king. And as part of that responsibility, he gets married and has heirs. David didn't want to do that. So he, Bertie was suddenly having to come out of the shadow where he was put as a small child and where he decided to stay as an adult and step into the light. And that's happening to so many of us. So everything, I really encourage you to go to stephenpressfield.com and look up his articles on theme or get the jab or whatever you need to do to understand what theme is and why it's so important to your story and really do a deep dive of the King's speech and see how every scene, every bit of dialogue, every everything is about speech and by extension about your personal power because that's what the speech represents. So there's the literal level. I mean, this is a man with a stammer who is giving a speech to the people. So that's, that's all the, surf, the superficial stuff. And it's highly entertaining. If you never went below that, you would still love this film. But when you start to look at the layers and layers here of what, what is your voice really? It's about speaking up and speaking out and being heard and stepping into the agency that you were born with, that we all have been born with and doing something with it. He, Bertie wants to blame Logue and Logue is having none of it. He really isn't. He's holding up a mirror to Bertie and saying, uh-uh, buddy, this one's on you. I'm here to help you, but you can't blame me if you're not speaking. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to create an environment or to, yeah, to create an environment in which you are comfortable speaking that allows your voice to come out. Because in many of the scenes where it's just, the, the, the more their relationship develops on a friend level, which is Logue's insistence that it be equals, and he's right. He knew, he knew that part of the problem was this social distance. And Bertie has been kept away from the world. He, he doesn't have any friends. He doesn't know how to be with a buddy. <laughs> So, and Logue knows it, knows that physically being relaxed and spiritually being relaxed and mentally being relaxed is part of the thing that's going to help this man be able to speak clearly and do the job that he now has to do. So good. Um, also, the, the, I, something I'm calling the many faces of Logue. 
we have character archetypes and they are archetypes. They are not characters. One character can embody many. And this is within this one scene, Logos, three different archetypes. He's an ally for sure. The, the movie goes on at length about how these two are friends and how they, their friendship developed through the rest of their lives. So he's absolutely an ally. He is absolutely a mentor in one particular area. There's, there's no thought here that Logue advises him on policy or on international affairs, all of these things that the archbishop wants to stick his finger into. Logue says, no, this is my domain over here. I'm here to help you with your voice so that you can say the things you want to say. I'm not here to tell you what to say. I'm here to help you say it. So he's absolutely a mentor. But he also, as we talked about off the top, he's also the shadow. He steps for, for that brief period of time from when he sits in the chair to when Bertie says, I have a voice. Logue is firmly the shadow. And he is drawing Bertie's shadow out of him because he knows Bertie has one heck of a temper. And he knows that when Bertie gets angry, the words flow very easily. And that's what he is trying. As his friend, he takes on the shadow figure to get Bertie to snap out of it. And really, only, your, only the people who love you the most are going to do that. People who don't really care about you, like the archbishop doesn't care, because the weaker Bertie is, the more powerful the archbishop is. Logue says, no, I don't want that power. It's your power. I have my own. I don't need yours. You take your power. And by the way, Archbishop, you go over there and you, you stay in your domain too. <laughs> Which is what Bertie says. <laughs> Basically, that's my head. Okay, so those are two amazing things. The other thing, at Leslie, and it's really interesting that you and I both picked up on the words here because this whole movie is about words and using them. I'm picking up on the dialogue in the scene. We get a lot of questions about how do I write good dialogue? Now, it, good dialogue can be confused for a catchy turn of phrase. And there's a lot of great witticisms in this movie, I'm not gonna lie. But the dialogue is wonderful, not because of the, of the quotable bits. It's wonderful because Again, it's doing double and triple duty. Characters aren't developed, they're revealed. So I just wanna pull out some of the dialogue from this scene and show you how it's revealing who these men are. So right off the bat, uh, when Bertie uh, Blow comes into the Westminster Abbey and he says, all right, let's get to work. Bertie says, I'm not here to rehearse doctor. True, you never called yourself doctor. I did that for you. No diploma, no training, no qualifications, just a great deal of nerve. Okay, that reveals so much about these two men. What is important to Bertie? Certificates, formality, things on paper, 
things that have been sanctioned by others. They're sitting in Westminster Abbey, for pity's sake. Third-party validation is another way to say that, right? It's all about third-party validation, which he really struggles with. And this is a performance story. As writers, what are we looking for? Third-party validation in the form of the New York Times bestseller list or the sales or the good Amazon reviews. That's all third-party validation too. And it's totally appropriate for the genre. Everything starts with the genre. Um, it also, this line, articulates exactly what Birdie is. Birdie does not have the formal qualifications for his job. We saw this a couple of scenes before in his All is Lost moment when he breaks down in tears with Elizabeth and says, I'm not a king. I don't know how to do this. He's looking through the red box, the famous red box with all of the papers in it. He can't make heads or tails out of any of it because his father, George V, trained David as the next in line. Bertie was, was, the, was the spare. You know, you have the heir and the spare. Bertie was the spare. He wasn't trained. He was bullied. He was deprived food. Even the nannies were awful to him. So he doesn't know how to do this job. I mean, he knows more than the average bear, obviously, but but he, he, he's being tossed into the deep end nonetheless. So what is it going to take? He doesn't have a diploma. He doesn't have any training. He doesn't have any qualifications. What he does have is a great deal of nerve. Perseverance. So he's criticizing Logue. But by extension, he is, that's his shadow. That is Bertie's shadow coming out and saying, Bertie, I think you're not good enough for this role. Come on, come on. This is what, 25 words? <sighs> Hello, this is great dialogue. This is what makes great dialogue. Um, yeah, and he talks about it again. Inquiries have been made. You have no idea who I have breathing down my neck. You're the king. Hello? You're the king. Sure, you've got to deal with other people, but the buck stops with you. So no one's really breathing down your neck. And that's what he gets at the end of it when he, when he puts, um, what's his face? The archbishop in his place. Uh, he talks about, oh, he calls Logue a fraud. This is the point where Logue says, all right, I've had enough of you. I, like, I'm not listening to this anymore. Because he's tried to be compassionate and a friend. And Bertie yells at him. He, he wants to put him in the tower, right? And charge him with fraud. With war looming, you've saddled this nation with a voiceless king. Destroyed the happiness of my family, all for the sake of ensnaring a star patient you knew you couldn't possibly assist. Logue says, as if, buddy. I've had, this is when he sits in the chair. Cause he's, that's a pity party. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So the other, oh, I skipped over. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to point out a couple of other things. He, he criticizes Logue when he sits in the chair 
and Log says, it's in place, it's being held in place by a large rock, which is hilarious, because it is a rock at the end of the day. That's the, st the stone of Scon. You are trivializing everything. No, Log is not trivializing anything. Birdie is trivializing. This is Log poking the bear and making Birdie give voice, give voice to how he has been behaving. Because when he says it out loud, that's when he gets it. I mean, that's when he get. that's when he shouts, I have a voice. And then Lionel very quietly, he, he again is using his voice with the dynamics. He uses his voice quietly to say, yes, you do have a voice. You have such perseverance, Bertie. You're the bravest man I know, and you'll make a bloody good king. Those are Big words with more impact because they're so quiet. So, so much here. All right, we, we got to wrap it up. I'm, I'm sad to say it's time to, to end this thing. So, Leslie, what is your key takeaway from this episode? Well, this is a picture-perfect scene in every respect, as we've discussed. Um, but the word choice here, you know, the thing that we both really settled on. It's simply excellent. Not one word is wasted. And in a story about speaking up and being heard, you really want to choose your words carefully. They beautifully set up the conflict. They show you what's at stake. They show the value shift. And they help us relate to a place and a time and a situation that's really different from our own experience. Um, and of course, this is late stage editing, right? Don't worry about this early on or you'll drive yourself mad, but it's something you don't wanna miss because it's one of the differences between a story that's you know pretty good and one that's really great. Because as novelists, all we have are words on a page and our readers' imaginations. So getting the words right is essential. And it comes with multiple drafts. So cut yourself some slack <laughs> and do multiple drafts. Um, oh, there's so many takeaways here. But I think, and I, I second everything you just said about word choice. I think for me, this episode is really answering the question that we got all throughout the roundtable, which is, we're novelists. Why are you studying films? Because films are stories, just like novels are stories, and we have a lot to learn from a film, especially one like The King's Speech or The Imitation Game, and, and there's others. Even though we are novelists, we talk about reading widely and deeply, and that's true. I think that'll be on my tombstone, <laughs> read widely and deeply. By that, we mean read across genre, but also different media. Like how many people are reading scripts? If you want to understand how to write great dialogue, read a script. It's nothing but dialogue. With all the description is stripped out because that's not our business as the writer of the screenplay. We, we're not there to direct the actors. 
or, or to show the actors what to do, unless it's really important. We want to put emphasis on a particular place. It's all dialogue and it's all got to work. Everything in your story has to come through the dialogue. The theme, for example, has to be working in the dialogue. And it really allows you to see where the fat is in your story so you can cut it. So I guess my key takeaway here is study scripts. Study all stories in every form. That's what's really going to help you level up as a writer of novels, certainly. Thank you so much, Leslie. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the Unpodcast at valeriefrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit storygrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.